Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, I learned a new word this past week. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, the word is polymath. You heard, anybody hear the word polymath? You know what a polymath is? It's from uh, a Greek word, uh, polymathes, which, which means much learning, okay? And certain people throughout history have been polymaths, people of much learning. Uh, Aristotle is referred to as a polymath. Okay, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, these are people who've excelled in many different fields. They've read a whole lot. They're experts in many different things. Uh, George Washington Carver would be a polymath. Uh, ben Franklin, one of our founding fathers, uh, would be a polymath. He's described as such on Wikipedia, at least. Okay, And Ben Franklin, as many of you know, he was a writer, he was a printer, he was a diplomat, he was uh, an inventor, a scientist, and as I've said, one of our founding fathers. And among the many offices he occupied was a position in the Pennsylvania Colonial Assembly or legislature. Now, that was before the American Revolution. Pennsylvania was still a colony. And in his autobiography, Franklin explains how he dealt with another legislator who did not like Franklin at all. This is what Franklin writes, and I quote, having heard that he had in his library a certain very scarce and curious book, I wrote a note to him expressing my desire of perusing that book and requesting that he would do me the favor of lending it to me for a few days. He sent it immediately, and I returned it in about a week with another note, strongly expressing my gratitude. The next time we met in the legislature, he spoke to me, which he had never done before, and with great civility. And he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, so that we became great friends, and our friendship continued to his death. Now, this is uh, Roman numeral one in your sermon outline. This is what's called the Ben Franklin effect, okay? And, and it, it goes like this. If someone has once done you a favor, he is more likely to do you another favor than if you had done a favor for him. That's how it works. For example, you may dislike somebody. But if you do them a favor, if you're in a position where you can do that and you've done it, your brain begins to change the way it thinks about that person you once disliked. You feel better about that person. Someone may have wronged you, and you're angry, and you don't feel like forgiving. But let's assume for a moment that you forgive them anyway as an act of the will. You know it's the right thing to do, and so you do it. Ben Franklin effect says that you'll begin to think better of that person after you've forgiven. Your feelings will begin to come back. Positive feelings will begin to grow for that individual simply because you've done them the favor 
of having forgiven them. Our gospel reading for this morning is from Luke 23. It's in your bulletin. And I think it's it's an example of the Franklin effect. Uh, Verse 26 is not a part of the reading. It's not officially a part of the reading. So I'm going to read it to you. Verse 26 reads in this way. And they led him away, meaning Jesus. And as they did so, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, apparently, Jesus is unable to carry his own crossbeam. That's the horizontal section that the condemned would carry to the place of execution. And you have to remember, um, he was, he's been up all night in these kangaroo courts. He's been beaten and whipped, and even worse, he's been scourged with this cat of nine tails. It's got pieces of bone in the ends, and it digs away at your flesh. He can no longer carry his crossbeam, which can weigh up to 100 pounds. So Jesus needs help. Simon of Cyrene is standing nearby. Simon doesn't volunteer to help. The soldiers seize him and they force him to carry the crossbeam behind Jesus. And that's curious, because remember what Jesus had said earlier in Mark's Gospel, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That's what a disciple does. Now, does that mean Simon of Cyrene has suddenly become a disciple? No, it doesn't. But he literally looks like one. Luke writes of him in that way. And in fact, three of the four gospel writers refer to Simon by name. That's kind of huge, okay? And not only that, but in Mark's Gospel, Simon is called the father of Alexander and Rufus. So, evidently, Alexander and Rufus were known to the church. They were known to the readers of Mark's Gospel. And not only that, but at the end of Romans, Paul refers to the wife of Simon. Evidently, she was known to the church in Rome. Now, Ordinarily, you don't mention people by name. You don't refer to them and single them out unless they're believers, okay? So Simon is forced to do Jesus a favor, and evidently it had a positive impact on Simon's family, his wife, his sons, if not Simon himself. Letter A. Simon of Cyrene is not so much the helper as the one who's helped. He's the one who's helped. Jesus is in a position of need. Jesus requires assistance. Simon helps him, and in helping Jesus, Simon and his family are the ones who are helped. Interesting. Verses 35 and following 
uh, Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed by the elites of Jerusalem and by one of the criminals. Jesus does not defend himself. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, he does not defend himself. Jesus becomes completely helpless. With the result that the other criminal does him a favor. He steps up to defend Jesus. This criminal rebukes the other one, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This penitent criminal is the only one in the scene who admits his guilt, and he's the only one in the scene who gives Jesus his due. In other words, this criminal comes to the aid of Jesus when no one else will. He does Jesus a favor, and Jesus is utterly helpless at this moment. And Jesus replies, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that is what we would call absolution. That's forgiveness. That is comfort. That is assurance of eternal life. Letter B. This criminal is not so much the helper as the one who is helped. What Jesus gives to us is far more than what we could ever give to him. And it illustrates an important point. Let her see. Even God's weakness, even God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus is helpless, and yet he's gathering a congregation to him even while he is victimized. Even when he lays aside his divine power to suffer and die for our sins, even when he makes himself the servant of all creation, even when he places himself under the wrath of Almighty God in our place, even then, this man is powerful, and we would argue he is the most powerful he's ever been right now. He's drawing a people to himself. He's creating a following. He's building his church while he is at his weakest. To me, it's like the Ben Franklin effect, you know. There's this guy in the Pennsylvania Assembly who hates Ben, so Ben asks a favor, and the man changes his attitude toward Ben. And, quote, he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, end quote. Now consider this. There are times in life when Jesus needs a favor from you. Because Jesus said, whatever you do to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. Jesus is needy. Through other people, he is needy. It may be a phone call from someone who needs your help. 
It may be me asking a favor of you. It may be someone else here at church requesting your assistance, asking you to give of your time, treasure, or talent, or, or maybe all three. So my question is this. What's your initial response? Even if it's not spoken, what are you thinking? What are the first words that come to mind? I'll tell you what they are, more than likely. No. I don't have time. I'm already committed. Uh, that's not in my wheelhouse. I understand. I've said that probably more than you, and I still do. But know this, when the Lord calls you, when the Lord has a favor to ask of you, you're not so much the helper as you are the one who is helped. Even when he asks something of you, it is in order to give to you. Remember that the next time you're asked. Roman numeral two, a different kind of king. Letter A, his sole concern is for others, always and only for others. He's concerned for the daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people. You get the idea. There's, there's a large group of people that are sympathetic. Not the elites, not the rulers. They're not sympathetic at all. They've staged this whole thing. But there's, there are people who are sympathetic. And women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, Jesus is speaking to these women of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which will happen in less than 40 years, less than a generation away. Jerusalem will be flattened by the Roman army. And the children of these women who are mourning for Jesus, they will die in that conflagration. And under those circumstances, Jesus is saying, it would have been better for you if you had never had kids. Really. Jesus is sad for them, not for himself. Verse 30 then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That's a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea, by the way. But what it means here is what the Romans will do is so terrible that you would prefer natural disasters to it. Verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, Jesus is saying, if the Romans can crucify me, someone whom they know is innocent of rebellion, what will they do to real rebels in the years to come? That's what he's saying. You see, his sole concern is for others. That's why he wept over the city of Jerusalem, because he knew the destruction that was coming. Number two, his concern is for his executioners. The soldiers are dividing up his clothing. And he prays for them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Now, 
If I saw somebody taking my stuff, I'd be upset. I would complain. My first thought would probably not have to be to pray for them. But that's Jesus. And then number three, his concern is for the criminal on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, even when he hangs on the cross, his concern is for the man next to him. His concern is for his mother before him, whom he commends to John the Apostle. It's not for himself. Letter B, this is how Luther defines sin, and it's so true. Sin is a life lived inward, turning inward on oneself. It's a life lived inward for self rather than outward for God and others. That describes sin to a T. And whenever we're asked to do something, whenever we're asked to serve or give in some way, our first thought is almost always for ourselves. How will this affect me? What will this mean for me? And I understand. I'm no different. But number one, this describes every one of us except Jesus. Except him. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. He was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. Without that self-centeredness that characterizes each one of us. We know more about Jesus than any other person from antiquity. And I dare you to find a single example in the life of Jesus, anything written about him, where he thought first of himself. You can't find it. That's not Jesus. And that's why, number two, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, he is the man for others. He's the man for others. So what does it mean to have Jesus as king? It means to have someone who lives his entire life, not for himself, but for you. His death is a death he dies for you. Your sin is gone. It is gone. He has taken it all away. And what is left for you and me is his righteousness, his love for and his service to you. Everything he does, everything he does is with you in mind. That's Jesus. That is your king. And even when he asks something of you, it's only so that he might give something to you that you need. So, when he asks you to bear a cross, when he asks you to serve others in some way, he's only asking you to follow him. And when he asks you to follow him, when you follow this king, you're not so much the helper as you are the one being helped. In Jesus' name, amen.